Welcome to the Sexy Biz Babe podcast. I'm your host, Tia Lin, a business empowerment coach and motivational speaker. This show is for the high achieving woman who wants it all. Each week, I walk you through how to own your power, generate consistent leads, attract clients, and close sales with ease and confidence. It's time to make money doing what you love. Let's dive in. All right, my sexies, I'm back here for a juicy episode that may be a little bit triggering. We're going to be talking about recovering from purity culture, which is a strict subculture that stems from religion or evangelical Christian and emphasizes strict gender roles and norms, abstinence and modesty. The basic teachings differ from males and females in certain ways and Although the message is mostly abstinence only across the board, there's a lot of weird gender lines that cause shame and judgment and may, which if you don't already know, many of us have been raised in and it comes from a subculture of evangelical Christian culture that emphasizes strict gender roles and norms, definitely goes all towards abstinence and modesty, and sometimes the teachings even differ for males versus females. And pretty much the message of abstinence only is across the board, and the repercussions of growing up in purity culture has been harmful mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And some of the repercussions include sexual shame, dysfunction, and can last long into adulthood. And how it might be holding you back in the bedroom, in your confidence, and holding you back from better sex. We're also going to be talking about sex education with a sex educator who is amazing. We're also going to be talking a little bit about what's going on in the world, um, taking away women's rights, Roe vs. Wade, and just a good discussion that needs to be had. So stay till the end. We get into it. And this episode is brought to you by my Sexy Goddess course. And uh, it's pretty much what we talk about in this episode is breaking free and having the best sex of your life and really just being that sexy, confident self that is in there. And I've always been a confident person, but through this work and really understanding my desires and communication and taking my pleasure to that next level is what this course is all about and this episode. So stay tuned to this amazing episode. You will definitely walk away with some entertainment and knowledge. And if you're interested, go check the links in the bio. My sexy goddess course is You do it on your own pace or there's launching periods where we have a group coaching program. So just go check it out and see what you're into. And there's some free links in the bio. Let's get into the episode. All right. I have a juicy and possibly triggering podcast for everyone today. And I have a really amazing guest on, Erica. She's a sex educator and consultant. I found her probably a few years ago on Instagram. She has really great content. She's very well known in the coaching sex education industry. And then I listened to a podcast with you on it and I just 
really enjoyed it. So I'm really happy to have you on. We're going to be talking about purity culture and getting into also some issues in the world today. So definitely stay tuned and go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Erica Smith and I'm a sex educator and this has been my work for over 20 years now. It's like what I have done since I was in college and something that I feel very passionately about. Um, I became a sex educator because I felt like there was so much that people were denied information about. And I saw how negatively that can impact us when we don't understand the simplicity of how our bodies work. So I, um, in my current work, focus a lot on helping people recover from purity culture. So folks that were raised in a pretty strict religious environment, sometimes often didn't get the sex ed that they need. So I provide that. Um, so that is kind of like the, the main thing that I'm doing these days. Yeah. I love that. I know I didn't really get a sex education. I didn't really know what it was for a very long time. I didn't even know what sex was. So let's hear how, like, were you raised in a real purity culture? No, surprisingly, I was not. And I love when I surprise people with that information because the assumption, I mean, a lot of the other people that are online doing work in the kind of post-purity culture ex-evangelical space were people who were raised in that world. Yeah. Um, But I was, I was not, I was, I always say my family was pretty casually Christian. So like, you know, they, they believe in God and are Christian, but not in a way that it was ever the focal point of our lives or in a way where I was scared by the religion in any way. So um, information about sex was not kept from me. I think my family is very cool and pretty matter of fact. So like I would hear my mom and all her sisters like openly discussing sex and even my grandparents. So it was like, yeah, I know, like my grandparents would joke about things along with the rest of us. So that's the environment I was raised in. Wow. Yeah. So definitely um, I do not come from having that experience myself. Yeah. What, how did that impact your life? You mean being raised by like cool, cool about sex people? More informed. Yeah. Less shame, more educated. Yes. I, I loved it think about this because I don't think it occurred to me that being raised in my family had that kind of positive impact on my sexuality Mm. until I was in graduate school because um, I have a graduate degree in human sexuality education. And as part of the curriculum, we have to kind of really analyze our own experience and upbringing and how it affects our ability to do this work. Yeah. And I, you're not projecting onto others. (laughs) Exactly. And so you're not like coming into it being like, yeah, wanting to put your beliefs and values onto everyone else. And you exactly got that. So I realized through my graduate school time that I was like, oh, wow, like my family was really open about stuff. And and for me, that allowed me to have a, I had a fantastic, healthy relationship in high school. And I did become a sexually active person in my teens and I had a wonderful positive experience with it. Like I went to, I was on birth control. Um, my family never like hounded me about being alone with my boyfriend. Um, 
I, I ended up kind of being the expert of my friend group. And so, you know, my friends would be all asking me questions. Um, and I was very comfortable talking about that stuff. And I was very curious about like finding books in the library that would teach me more. So I, I really credit my family for never making me feel shame about sex. And it wasn't like an intentional thing. I don't think they were ever like, you know, we're going to raise our kids without shame, but they just didn't somehow. Yeah. So, <laughs> and you didn't even know any different. That's the funny thing exactly. is as children, we don't know any different. Like some people are like, oh, if you're raised by two dads, like they're going to be like missing something. Whereas mm-hmm. as a kid, you're not going to know it's different. You're yep. just going to be happy with the love or the care. Uh, yeah. I love that. It yeah. sounds like you're kind of like the show sex education. <laughs> I, you know, it's so funny. I haven't, I watched a tiny bit of the show. I haven't watched it all because, and I tell people this all the time, for me, when I'm not working, I like to think about, I like to escape and I yes. like to watch shows <laughs> that don't remind me of my work. Yeah. So I know that um, the Jillian Anderson character is like the cool <laughs> sex positive mom. And I'm like, yeah, that I don't have children, um, but yeah. that would definitely be me. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's just a very cool, chill vibe. <laughs> Yeah, that's it just sounds familiar too because he's very in it with his mm-hmm. mom who <laughs> is a sex um therapist and so he like wants to help the teenagers mm-hmm. and I loved it. I was like, "Oh, I don't really want to watch a high school show, but yeah. it's very informative and funny and gives me a different perspective. Plus that's not what my high school was like when I was in high school. So it's very different these days. Yes. These high school shows. I'm like, "Whoa." <laughs> Absolutely. Um, That's another thing that I think is important to mention is that I was, you know, I'm in my early 40s. So I was Mm -hmm. in high school in the 90s and in a tiny little rural Pennsylvania town. So the kind of things that, you know, I see people being open to talking about now were not things that people were open to talking about when I was a teenager. And probably not not when you were a teenager. Not even when I was. And I was in a very small town in Utah. So I grew up the complete opposite of you. Yeah, Um, My mom was pretty – she was very Christian, non-denominational. She wasn't very – she didn't, like, ingrain shame into us. But it was definitely, Mm -hmm. like, don't have sex before marriage. Um, Your body is a temple. And she definitely more ingrained right and wrong – without having like, what would I say, judgment or shame or you're a bad person. She more focused on being a good person and kind Mm -hmm. and loving. So I appreciate that. But then my, I was in Utah. So (laughs) it was surrounded by Mormon religion and very judgment, shame, bad, wrong, going to hell, like good, bad, different. So I was more around that. So it was very strong in the family and my dad's family and all these other things. So yeah, even just talking about to adults today, I talk to like my friends that are full-blown adults having sex and they're like, I probably wouldn't have sex, had sex till later if I knew what it was, but they were curious. And so they just, that's how they figured out what it was. Wow. Wow. Which to me, like I have worked, um, a large part of my career has been working specifically with teenagers. So I've done sex ed and, you know, sexuality kind of work with, 
with young people. Um, that was the majority of my career until the last couple of years. And I firmly believe that if we give kids real information and don't act like it's a secret, then we're going to equip them to make better decisions. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, if you give them all the information about like, yeah, this, this is, these are different kinds of sex you can have. These are why people might do it. These are the things to think about before you ever do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is going to make, lead to better kind of decision-making than just not mm-hmm. saying a word. <laughs> yeah. I was lucky that as a kid, I learned more of maybe why not to, but it wasn't rad or bad or wrong, but mm-hmm. like that it could be vulnerable or, you know, getting pregnant and, but it wasn't so like, you're going to get pregnant, you're going to die. <laughs> That's good. And yeah. So I mean, I there was, are. Yeah. To make a, like. There are extremes. <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, like there's you know, the extreme of what you just said, like people saying, if you have sex, you're going to die, you're going to go to hell, everything terrible (laughs) is going to happen to you. And, you know, then just kind of getting a, the average American sex ed lesson that only focuses on like STDs and pregnancy prevention. That's pretty common. Um, But yeah, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big proponent of comprehensive sex ed, (laughs) meaning like giving people all of the information that's developmentally appropriate for them. Yeah. So you've been in this work for so long. I mean, you pretty much started in your teenage years. Basically, I was like, <laughs> it, yeah, I um, I got interested in this aspect of, I was a women's studies major in college, and I really liked the classes that had to do with health and wellness and kind of like the political aspects of women's health in particular. And sex ed ended up being like a natural path to go on. And so, yeah, the first kind of sex ed things I ever did was organize um, events on my college campus with my friends that had to do with like, um, you know, learning about your body and consent and those types of things. And it was pretty controversial. Um, I went to a big state school. I was at Penn State University. So we're not talking like, I mean, everyone knows Penn State is like the party football school, right? Yeah. But um, still doing some doing some sex ed events ruffled some feathers back in the day, and that's kind of oh, where I, I got my start. <laughs> what what year about? Uh, so I graduated college in two thousand one. So it would mm-hmm. have been like ninety seven to oh one that I was in college. So awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so how did that go? How did having a sex liberation or sex education type of event at your college? How did that go? What did it well, help with? We had, um, I remember having, you know, it was kind of like a fair and we had mm. different tables and different people there to like teach different lessons. So we taught, um, we taught women how they could do their own cervical self-exam. Like oh. here, like you can take home this plastic speculum and use a flashlight and you can actually look at your own cervix. Yeah. Um, we had, uh, a, you know, a, an activity to learn about consent. We had a, a table that had different catalogs because this is like, you know, the the time you would get catalogs for like sex toy. It's not, you know, the, oh, they yeah. the website thing was fairly yeah. new. So it would be like here are catalogs from these really fantastic women-owned feminist sex Ooh, companies. And you yes. can look at those and talk about pleasure. 
Um, so it was just kind of like you could come in and move around the event and learn different things and get free stuff and have conversations that, as far as we knew, weren't really happening anywhere else at the time, at least, you know, not on our, not on our campus. No, that's awesome. I mean, I still like as an adult (laughs) until I got really into this and coaching and liberation and teaching other women, I didn't do uh, an exam. <laughs> yeah. On myself. I never really looked. Right. And, <laughs> that's a big healing part. Maybe any it women is. listening that haven't done it, maybe that's what you should start with. <laughs> I think so too. And that's something I, when I have like private clients doing post purity culture work, I always want to know, like, have you ever really looked at yourself in the mirror, like examined your vulva? Yeah. And gotten to know it. It's it's it shouldn't be a mystery. It's part of your body. Um, and yeah, I mean, plenty of women get to adulthood and well into adulthood with ever having really just been like, oh wow, that's my anatomy. So I think yeah. it's just an important thing to do. And just not comparing it to some perfect one on porn or pictures yep. where they only have certain ones. We're all different, different shapes, different colors, different sizes. So yep. appreciate what you have and love it and appreciate the differences. I mean, how would you, it's kind of hard to love something that you haven't even looked at or gave any yes. attention to. Yes. Um, so there's actually like your, to your point, like try not to compare it to other people's. I think it's so important to know that like everyone's genitals are different. They're like, snowflakes. They're like fingerprints. You're not going to have the same exact one as somebody else. And they're wonderful examples online where you can actually look at photos of other people's vulvas. It's called the vulva gallery um, and the visual vaginal library, I believe. So if you would Google those terms, you would come up with a website that just has photos and they're presented in a really matter of fact way. Just, and you can also look at, um, you know, like what does it look inside the vagina when you are ovulating, when you are menstruating, like all Ooh. this fascinating sex ed stuff. Um, yeah. So I think just getting acquainted with your body and how other bodies look is really mm-hmm. helpful um, when when people tend to feel shame or like, oh, something's wrong with me. Mine is, you know, quote unquote, ugly or whatever. I'm like, nobody's yeah. ugly. Everyone just has a different body. Exactly. Oh, I love that. So what is a recommendation after that, that Mm -hmm. people can start educating either themselves or even their children for sex and like, just kind of start the discussion? Yeah. So talking about sex with your children, this is, I think so important for everybody, um, can be especially important for people who were raised in purity culture because, those of, you know, people who are raised in purity culture often have no idea where to begin or have no roadmap. And it can bring up a lot of our own feelings when it comes time to like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to my five-year-old about masturbation because they're touching themselves. So I have to have a conversation. And if no one ever had that conversation with you, that can be like very stressful. Mm -hmm. So some really great resources that I always recommend for this are Um, There's a really great organization called Sex Positive Families, and they have a website with so much education on it. And it will tell you how to have these conversations with kids. And a really important thing about talking to kids about sex is that 
it's not like you have, you don't wait until they're 13 and sit them down and have the talk. Yeah. I think that's kind of the stereotype. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But really what you're in, I, in ideal circumstances, you're having a whole bunch of little moments with your kid all through their life. So mm-hmm. if you're watching TV together and there's some kind of scene or mention of something that has to do with bodies, sex, relationships, gender, and they don't know, you know, you can just be like, hey, do you know what that means? Or do you know why this girl said that? And like build on those little moments so that when they are older and they want, you know, they're ready to know the actual, you know, what it's like to consider having sex with a partner. Like when they're teenagers, you've already laid a foundation where your kid knows that like, oh, my parent is open to talking about this. I won't get in trouble if I ask questions. Mm -hmm. I won't get in trouble if I'm curious. Um, That's one of the most important things is letting your kid know that asking questions is there's no shame in that. And they're not going to be punished because they come home one day and say, mom or dad, what is porn? You know? Yeah. And even just understanding the, I I can't, I'm having a brain fart, but the real words for your body parts. Yes. Like, yeah. The anatomical terms. Yes. Mm-hmm. And not having shame about them. Or I don't know, one of my friends, she has younger kids and she was very like matter of fact about, okay, this is your body part. This is private though. So when they like started touching themselves, they're like, it's yes. okay. This is your body part. Don't like feel bad about it, mm-hmm. but you don't do that in public. Right. And so they kind of understood. And then they understood maybe that other people don't touch their body parts instead of like it being such a taboo thing where they're, Oh, don't ask, don't tell, don't even look mm-hmm. at it. But mm-hmm. then understanding what's right and wrong with maybe adults and having like don't touch there and letting t- their parents know. So they didn't feel yes. shame for that. And I just thought for that sure. was like, wow. Really yeah. Nice. That sounds like, um, who, did you say your friend had this conversation with their kid? Yeah. That yeah. sounds like a very, very good, um, parenting win right there is mm-hmm. addressing that. And, you know, saying that, this is your body. It's your, your business to touch it, but there are circumstances in which that's okay. And where it's not okay. Yeah. Whereas if that didn't happen, they might not know. And they're like, Oh, mom said that was bad. And then if it happens with an adult, they're like, Oh, that's bad. I can't tell my mom. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's super important. I think you also just maybe inadvertently brought up the point that teaching kids about their bodies and sex actually protects them from predators. Um, Because if your kid knows, like, I'm allowed to say no, this person shouldn't be doing this. Um, I have the right to my own body. They are not going to be the ideal victim. Um, The ideal victim, unfortunately, would be a child that doesn't know anything about their body and who is very ashamed to talk about it. And that's, you know, something that I think, you know, is, is almost counted on by the people who are more likely to prey on children is that like, they don't want a kid that, that knows all kinds of anatomical terms and has, has like a (laughs) sense, you know, a sense of ownership over their body. So teaching your kids about the basics and letting them know about consent is actually really, really protective. Yeah. And uh, consent and boundaries, it's so sad, but it's barely talked about these days. 
yeah. as an adult. Like it really is. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people seem to not even understand what it is still or yeah. why to get consent. And I love going with the flow, but I'm more in like a lifestyle educated um scene and mm-hmm. I feel so much safer at parties with people who understand and they make sure to ask and it just feels so much safer to go to a play party than yeah. to a club. Yeah, it's <laughs> wild cuz I know people have ideas that like well anyone that you know, goes to play parties or, or engages in some kind of kink. Those people are so wild and crazy. And it's like, those folks have a great understanding of consent and it is a foundational cornerstone of any event like that. But if you, like, you're right, if you go to a bar or a club, (laughs) that is not a foundational cornerstone. Mm -hmm. And most of the folks I've worked with will say like, of all the things I learned in my youth group or in my, you know, church, consent was never brought up once. Like yeah. the word consent was never brought up once. Oof, that needs to be talked about so much more. I mean, there's still issues. I'm freaking in my 30s and I still have issues with men that just don't even understand it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So... Yeah, on that. There's just so much going on in my head right now. So I had some <laughs> issues with it recently. So I'm just like, ah. But mm. I just finished, I just went to in Halloween, we had a tantra, a tantra, and a another play party with no penetration. So like, and That's I felt fantastic. safe there. Yeah. One of them was like no penetration was allowed. And then the other one was definitely allowed, but I <laughs> wasn't. And so it was a really fun environment and I felt really safe. And like the person I went with already knew ahead of time. And he was like, Mm -hmm. oh, of course. No, I'm there for you. Like it was just such a different experience than if I didn't like. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. It was so fun. Um, Okay. So what recommendations do you have for anybody that has a lot of shame around sex or masturbation because Mm -hmm. of their purity culture and religion? Yeah. So huh, there's so many things when, when I get this question, I'm like, I have so much to say, so mm-hmm. I can go in so many directions with this one. I think it's important to just acknowledge that you were raised with beliefs that are, that were intentionally there to cause you shame. You know, those nothing's wrong with you. It's the, you were affected by a belief system that is working the way it was supposed to like making people feel shame about sex especially women is a patriarchal design like that shit is on purpose so acknowledging like it's not my fault that I feel this way it's not my fault that I have shame but also recognizing that you can do something about it um I have I have seen folks battle their shame and really start like making incredible progress. And it is a, I consider it a pretty long game. You can't just decide one day, I'm not going to be ashamed of sex. It's going to be something that I think you, you may continually come up against over time. But the things, the things that I think really help people combat shame is first of all, taking a good hard look at the values you were raised with around sex and deciding if you even agree with them. Like, do you agree that virginity is 
you know, the most important thing in the world. Do you agree that the only kind of okay sex happens within a heterosexual Christian marriage? Do you agree that um, it's a sin to masturbate? Like, figure out where you stand on those issues and which one, which beliefs don't serve you anymore. Because yeah. I think when when you clearly identify, you know what, I do believe in the right to pleasure. And I believe that I can seek it out and make myself feel good. Then you're going to feel, I don't know, more okay and more grounded because you have, you have like created your own sexual ethic to live by. Yeah. I, I think naturally I'm a curious, challenging person. Like I challenge my beliefs. So that is what I did. Mm -hmm. Like, even though I was not really told by my family, but in society, like yeah. not to masturbate or that women don't. It was like mm-hmm. a thing that women didn't talk about masturbation or that it was almost like you're not, I don't know, like, I don't know. It was just like icky or wrong. Oh, and yeah. Like women did, just didn't do it. And it's also like a joke, you know, like yeah. thinking that for a long time, like, it would be kind of considered like sad, like, oh, you masturbate, you're, it's because you can't find a man. It's, it's a sad replacement for a partner. Yeah. When in reality, it's like how you really learn your body. And Mm -hmm. we literally have our clitoris, which has what, 6,000, 9,000 nerve endings. It's many thousand. (laughs) I feel like I hear different numbers. And the last number I heard was like 7,000. Yeah, (laughs) six to nine. I don't know. It's many thousand nerve endings. But I was very Christian. So I was like, why would God make this feel so good and pleasurable and me not use it? And like, I don't know, as a kid, like, you know, teenager getting older, closer to when I was wanting to have sex is this is better than having sex with somebody else random or some person or putting myself in harm's way. So I just, I thought logically it made sense (laughs) Sure, (laughs) to like learn my body and to have pleasure with just myself. So that was my own little beliefs when I was like young teenager. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes I just like to like zoom out, like zoom out on society and be like, why ever did people decide to tell other people that they can't touch their own body for pleasure? It's so weird. (laughs) Like when you really start to question, like who does that belief serve? It serves, it doesn't serve us. It serves the people that want to control our behavior. Mm -hmm. And why do they want to control our behavior? Because keeping us full of shame, you know, makes us easier to, follow along their beliefs. Like there's just, when you know, when you really kind of look at it in a big picture way, it's like, it makes zero sense to tell another person that they cannot touch their own body for pleasure. I'm like, yeah. How did we ever decide that there was, well, I know how, um, (laughs) I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of like kind of looking back at the history of different kinds of sexual beliefs and values. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whenever, um, Christianity started really kind of taking over the world. And we're talking like in the Renaissance era. So I don't know, 1600s, 1500s, like um, there were different technologies invented, like the printing press that were almost immediately used to create erotic material. Oh, any, any kind of technology that is created 
almost immediately people use it for erotic purposes and the printing press was no different. So people were making, they were printing off erotic literature and the ruling class um, in England thought that if they allowed working people and poor people to have access to porn and to masturbate, they would be less productive. Okay. Right. Like, it's like, (laughs) well, they're not going to make us any money. They're not going to work in our factories if they can like look at porn all day. (laughs) Isn't that wild? So it's like they started passing laws about the availability of erotic material because they thought that the, the working classes would get distracted and wouldn't, you know, produce. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's funny. Yeah. And then where do you think is a boundary for like masturbation or porn? Mm. That's kind of where people get tied up is that it's bad or it, Mm -hmm. it, what would you say? It puts bad thoughts in like boys or Mm -hmm. I don't know, like where's the line? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do think there's, it's a very complicated topic. Um, I know that folks can personally self-diagnose as having, you know, like doing it too much or thinking like it's affecting my life or relationship. So if, if you are masturbating so many times a day to the point that it does, you know, affect your ability to like be present or get your work done or affects your interpersonal relationships, then I would honestly take a look at like, what is, what is it distracting you from? What are the reasons you're doing it so often? What are you avoiding by yeah. by doing it? But I mean, masturbating regularly, um, daily, even multiple times a day in and of itself is not a problem. Um, yeah. But it's complicated because we do live in a world that is very stigmatizing about sex and very sex negative. So people often believe that they have a problem just because they've been told it's problematic behavior. And in the case of um, porn in particular, studies show that the more religious a person is raised, the more likely they are to perceive that they have a problem with porn. Mm. So like for some people watching it once, twice a week would never register as a problem. Mm -hmm. But if you were raised to believe that it is very, very bad, then you're going to say, I'm an addict. Mm. So there's you know, it's not an easy answer. I think everyone has to kind of decide what their comfort level is. Like, do I do it so much that I'm uncomfortable with it? Mm -hmm. And then maybe examine what the root of that discomfort is. Is it really affecting my life or have I been told by the church that I shouldn't do this? Mm -hmm. Um, Because often that's, you know, something that's really behind people's guilt is, is just having been told that it's wrong. Yeah. And then on the other side, it could be, it is a problem because it is coming in between your relationship where they go Mm -hmm. towards porn instead of actually their partner. Maybe Mm -hmm. they grew up with it and now it's like in their head that, you know, that's how they got off. That's how it's easy. That's how they're objects. That's like the path. What Mm -hmm. would you say to do if there is a problem where they're like, it is coming in between work. It is coming in between intimacy. Mm -hmm. It is coming in between like feeling good about themselves. Yeah. So I just taught a class in August all about porn for people who were raised um, with religious beliefs around it. And one of the things that I really learned when doing all my research for the class is that yes, porn 
the way people use porn can be problematic, but the way, if we talk about it as an addiction, that's not medically accurate. There is no scientific evidence that porn behaves, that porn makes our brains respond in the way that like drugs or alcohol do. Mm. So I would recommend that in, and this is based on like scientific research recommend that if someone feels that it is a problem in their relationship, that they seek out a sex therapist who has positive views about like our ability to use porn in reasonable ways. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people immediately go to these religious based rehabilitation programs, but those are all looking at porn through the lens that it's an addiction and that it's immoral. And Mm -hmm. so that is not actually, if we're treating it as an addiction, when it doesn't function as an addiction, it's not helping anyone. Mm -hmm. So going to a sex therapist that has a much more kind of nuanced view of pornography Mm -hmm. and how it can have a place in our lives would be to me, the best recommendation. And there's some preliminary data that shows that once you remove all the shame from porn use, um, the men in the study, like use it less. They don't care as much. Mm, Yeah. Once we've destigmatized it and they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's not the literal worst thing in the world that I like to do this. Sometimes their interest in using it goes way down. Yeah. And another thing about porn, I have like a bunch of things I want to talk about. Yeah. It's oftentimes they look up what they don't do or like something that's taboo because it's different or new. And Mm -hmm. I've even heard some people, they look up things, yeah, that they would never really do. It's just different. Mm -hmm. It's just like a taboo or they like the kink or they like Mm -hmm. this. And it doesn't really mean that they want that. Yeah. And it also doesn't mean that we're going to act on, like when we have sexual fantasies, we don't need most people do not feel the need to act on every single sexual thought and fantasy yeah. <laughs> they have and we have the ability to control our behavior mm-hmm. which i think the church teaches the exact opposite the church teaches that any sexual thought or feeling is a dangerous path mm-hmm. to go down but in reality i'm like i can see someone think they're hot and not have to go have sex with them <laughs> you know what i mean i mean that's me every day <laughs> like i don't usually right. want to <laughs> Right. Um, But there's something you said earlier that I want to go back to, which was like, you know, something about like boys, like learning things Mm -hmm. from porn. And I think one of the most important things that we can do as adults, especially parents or caretakers of young people is talk to them realistically about porn. And that is something that I know makes people very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But um, this this is actually called porn literacy. It means telling young people, hey, porn is out there. It's easy to access. You've probably come across it already. You should know that what you're seeing is acting. What you're seeing mm-hmm. is performance. Mm-hmm. What you're seeing isn't necessarily how people have sex always in real life. Yeah. Um, the bodies aren't always representative of a diverse array of women. Um mm-hmm depending on, you know, who the porn is made for, like if it's made specifically for a male viewer, you're probably not going to see women's pleasure being centered in the way you would see if it was made by women for women. So having those conversations and bringing up those points to people are so important so that we don't have generations of young people who think that porn is the way sex is supposed to be. 
Yeah, and I would say taught them everything. That's the most detrimental, especially to boys, is that if they use it too much and they don't know that, that then they try to recreate that porn in their brain, and that's how they think sex should be. You yeah. you know, as an adult, I've witnessed and felt that where it's like, bing, bing, boom. Wait, mm-hmm. I'm a human too. I want, I want some yeah. like love and attention and like, yeah, like. What what is what are you doing? Right, I am not <laughs> merely an orifice. You know? Yes, I'm, yeah. So, what would you say to any man that still has that in his head as that is how sex is and that's how he's done it? And he could be 20, 30, 40, 50 years old. I know. Um, yeah i I think I would encourage. If there are, you know, happen to be men listening who (laughs) feel that way about sex, I would just encourage them to recognize that like having sex with a, with another person is a, I like to refer to it as a like co-created experience. You're not there to do something to someone else. You and the other person are there to have an experience together Mm -hmm. and doing that together requires equal time and attention, um, both receiving and giving pleasure as you're comfortable with and as you want to, um, not just thinking that you are providing a woman with all this pleasure simply because you've penetrated her with your penis as well. Um, So it's like, please get to know the details of clitoral anatomy Mm -hmm. and also understand that almost every person with a clitoris needs significant stimulation to achieve an orgasm. And sometimes that takes time Yeah, and it's okay. If it takes a person a long time to have an orgasm, that doesn't mean anything's wrong with them, but a good partner kind of, you know, will mutually, a good partner will, will try to make it happen, you know? Yeah. And try and take it as more of an experience. Like, Ooh, what does she like? What do I mm-hmm. like? Back and mm-hmm. forth energy, more of a journey and experience and not focus on the end goal. Yes. Which would help so much. <laughs> yes. And one other thing that is coming to mind is I also have heard stories about um, men who feel like their ego is bruised if their partner doesn't have an orgasm. Yeah. And that's not the case. Like Mm -mm. your, your masculinity shouldn't be contingent on whether or not your partner has an orgasm this particular time. Like sometimes it's just not going to happen and that's okay. Um, you know, and, and so I've, I've talked to women who felt really pressured to like have one or fake it because the guy would be hurt and disappointed. And I'm like, you know, orgasms take if you're with a partner, it's a two person situation. One person is not solely responsible for the orgasm. So if a partner doesn't have one, like it's, it's not a dig on your, you know, skills and masculinity. Sometimes it just doesn't happen and that's okay too. Oh, there's so many times that I've had sex without orgasm and it was great. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) (laughs) Pleasure does not come from pressure. (laughs) Yes. It's like, it's so hard. It's, it's when you feel safe and you have enough time to just relax. That's where it arises. So really understanding too, that there's different types of orgasm. Mm -hmm. Like I used to think something was wrong with me because I didn't orgasm the way that is usually publicized. Like 
ejaculation, like a man. That's like usually uh-huh. what we talk about. <laughs> Whereas also you can have an orgasm. It's just like pulsating in your cervix or mm-hmm. pulsating and joy all really overflowing. So there's so many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely need to do a full podcast about that. It's just all the different types of orgasms. So that'll be in the future. Sweet. Awesome. So uh, there's so many things to talk about in sex education, but another one is what is going on in the world with Roe versus Wade. And it kind of goes also towards not, you know, women not having the same choice or equal opportunity or kind of being stuffed down as less than. I think. Yeah, I do too. And I, you know, I worked in abortion care early in my career. That was actually the first job I had after college is that I worked in a clinic. Well, I worked in several clinics where I was the counselor and educator. And I also would be in the procedure room holding people's hands and talking them through the procedure. And so I, I feel like that was some of the most important work and educational work I've ever done. And it showed me how important it is for people to have the choice to decide whether or not to have children and how that choice is so individual and so personal. And also how much there are other people who want to take that choice away desperately. So, you know, we had clinic protesters, we had threats of violence. um, And, and all of this, this big, you know, what's happening with Roe being overturned and then also being, you know, an issue that's now gone to the states and each individual state trying to make, you know, make uh, rules and laws about it is this is something that is deeply related to purity culture and the 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 folks and the religious and political forces that created purity culture have been working on this for decades. It was, you know, an orchestrated, it's not a surprise. Um, the the Christian right decided in the late 70s that they wanted to make abortion a big political issue. And so they yeah. did. And, and it shouldn't be political. And it no. shouldn't be connected to religion. I thought we had a right no. to believe in right. whoever we want. I thought that was, that's what I talk about sometimes when people get yeah. caught up in this, is that don't I have a freedom to choose my religion? We thought so. We think so, you know, and I, when you actually get down to looking at how things play out in this country, um, it's, it's kind of a farce. Like we're told that we have freedom of religion, but there are certain types of Christians that want to make their belief the only belief and put it into law and make Christian beliefs laws. And that to me is like, all of the stuff that, you know, when we talk about the founding fathers and freedom of religion, it's like, that's not what that means at all. You know? Yeah. And I actually got into this conversation with my mom recently. And one thing that I realized was, you know, I do hold space for each individual's beliefs. Like that's yes. the thing is that it's okay if you don't believe in abortion. Like I hold space for you. I support your beliefs. I support that you believe that this is a baby and it's murder. Fine. That's Mm -hmm. your belief. And and don't have one, you know? Yeah. Then that's okay. And Mm -hmm. you don't ever have to do anything that you don't want to 
but it's the pushing of their beliefs on somebody else in their religion that makes it like, I don't know, like, ugh. It's hard to take in. And we had that conversation recently. And I was like, she got very triggered. And I was like, mom, I support, I'm not arguing with your beliefs. I support you. And it like kind of de-escalated it. So I think that's Mm -hmm. a really good way to come about any of these issues is to just seek understanding Mm -hmm. of a different viewpoint. Yeah. And you're right. Everyone, you know, is entitled to their decision about whether or not they would choose abortion. But the problem is legislating that choice away from often the people who need it the very most. People who already don't have access to birth control or sex education or, you know, people living in poverty to whom having another child would be detrimental to their already living children or to their whole family. Um, It's, yeah, it's it's cruel. Like that to me, it's just like that taking away that right is is truly saying, like, I I actually don't care at all what happens to these people. And it's such a slippery slope with health and in life where, okay, I know someone recently who the baby died in the mom's belly. Yeah. And in some states, I know this is touchy. I can tell you. Oh, no. It's illegal. It's illegal to have the abortion, the DNC, where she was getting really sick, like deadly sick. Like she felt like death. And it is illegal in some states for her to get that DNC, that abortion, even though the baby is dead. She would, what, die? And And then what? So you're murdering a human mother with multiple children or Mm -hmm. family or whatever it is. And then like, how, where's the line? That's the slippery slope of this issue. It's so much that can really hurt other people. Right. And so if you've, you've probably heard the like slogan or the kind of cry that abortion is healthcare and it, it absolutely is. And you were talking about that right now. It's not just something and it's perfectly legit to have an abortion just because you do not want to be pregnant. But there yeah. are also people who do want to be pregnant who might have an ectopic pregnancy or a something that makes their pregnancy non-viable. And I have people close to me in my life who have had unwanted, who have had to have abortions that they didn't want because they wanted a child. <gasps> yeah. And the, the, you know, the child was developing in a way that would have impacted like imperiled the life of the mother or, you know, there would have been no positive health outcomes for the baby. And so I, I mean, I know and love people that have had to make that heartbreaking decision. And the way it is with some of these laws is that you're right. Like they don't even have the opportunity to make that decision. It would require out of state travel and lodging and not everyone has access to that. And who wants to do that? You just want to go to your own damn doctor. And it really just, yeah, affects the poverty, poverish, poverty, poverty, (laughs) like it just really does. And uh, just recently, okay. I have to say this on my podcast. Yeah. Plan B does. I learned this from friend, let's say client. It could be anybody in my life who recently was really with the calendar method and really with you know, making sure she wasn't going to have kids because she didn't want kids. And she used plan B and she learned it's on the box that 
Plan B actually doesn't help you. It doesn't do anything if you're already ovulating. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody should know this. It's almost like, what? Yeah, because that's, you know, Plan B and any other um, medical uh, emergency contraception is designed to prevent us from ovulating. Yeah. So if you're already ovulating and you take plan B, you still can get pregnant and it's actually highly likely. Yeah. And it's very likely. I thought you were going to mention the weight limit, which I think is also important to know. Please, please share. Yeah. So the actual, so plan B is a name brand. It's a type of emergency contraception that you can buy over the counter, Um, but it does not it is not as effective in women that weigh like 165 pounds or more, which is not big, That's right? That's like 15 more than me. It's That's not, fif- yeah. And I'm not big. Right. It's just like <laughs> 165. So the more you weigh over 165, the less likely plan B is to work for you. Yeah. Um, so please, I always want people to know this. If you were listening and you weigh more than 165 and you could get pregnant, Plan B is not the method for you. There is another pill called Ella, and Ella is more likely to work in people that weigh more than 165. But for people who, um, and I'm not sure if, I can't remember off the top of my head if Ella has a weight limit, but um, the best method of emergency contraception, if you are heavier, is to get a copper IUD immediately after sex or, you know, as soon as you can after sex. So what if you were already ovulating? Like I use the calendar method. Mm -hmm. So I did um, that for years already ovulating. And it says that, and then you have unprotected sex and you could go get the, the IUD and it, it kills the sperm, right? Isn't that? Yeah. The copper IUD kills the sperm and it also would prevent any kind of, you know, fertilization from, from being able to occur. So, um, you know, I'm speaking as a sex educator, not a doctor or a gynecologist. So I would call and check, you know, let them know, like, I believe I'm here in my cycle, but I, you know, I need emergency contraception. And I, um, I've never heard of anyone being denied the copper IUD, but it is a really great, um, it's the most effective emergency contraception. It has the highest effectiveness rate. And then you have an IUD and you can, you know, use that for many years. It's a long-term yeah. birth control method. Good. Good to know. I'm learning some yeah. things as well. Yeah. And I just remember being in college. I wish I knew the, the legal year, but I remember learning about when abortion became illegal, that 18 years later, there was a spike in, um, in crime, like a very high spike. I don't know. Do you remember learning that? Where Not it exactly. really affected our life because there was mm-hmm. a lot more children being born that maybe not wanted, maybe not mm-hmm. desired, not getting the help, the the, the resources. resources that they need. So there was yeah. just all these, these little humans that were raised that now lacked a lot of that need. Mm-hmm. Like making a person like freaking being a mom is hard. I'm not even a mom. And I know like, yeah, giving your life away and, and supporting another human, you have to change your whole life. Making people do that isn't good for the child. no. It is not. It is not child-centered. It is not the loving decision. It's like, 
and, and, you know, I'm sure you've thought much about this same sort of hypocrisy, but like the folks that say the loudest, you know, about saving lives and protecting children don't seem to care much about them once they're born. And it yes. comes time to like give them free lunches or create policies for their school or, you know, <sighs> make sure that their families have what they need. Like, it's like, oh, actually, you know, Never mind. Like we just wanted to make sure you were born. And <laughs> now yeah, that you're born, you're not going to get anything. You're we don't we don't support you. We don't really yeah. care for you afterwards. It's just oh, you're born. Yep. You're born. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you may not have a good life for the rest of yep. your life. Um that's just a big thing. It's a huge huge issue and even with not helping the children in schools that just hurts me the most is that we're yeah. making all these children be born and then that we're not helping these children in schools. Like we're not yeah. regulating, we're not teaching just education, education yeah. about this issue and more security. Ah, hurts my heart. I know. I know. <laughs> it's, there's so, so much to unpack when it comes to the issue of restricting access to abortion. And I feel like we could just go down so many roads of mm-hmm. the harm that will come of, of denying people this access. Yeah. And I guess for anybody listening that this may trigger you, I would go back to what Erica said earlier is, are these maybe your beliefs or were these that you were just learned that you were taught what society mm-hmm. taught you and maybe like kind of do some deep, deep, education yeah. and understanding yeah. yourself and where you and lie. asking yourself yeah. where, you know, where, what this makes you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something I want to share. I, one of my, I guess probably most popular social media posts I've ever made is one where I detailed the, the types of different people that I encountered when I worked in abortion care. And it is a big, massive variety of people. So I would like to just read um, my post because I think that this has always been like powerful for people to hear. Yeah. I'd love to. Okay. Um, Here are some patients I remember from my time in abortion care, a Catholic who asked us to baptize the fetus. She brought a vial of holy water. A girl who had been her church's hell house abortion girl. Yeah. Um, you know what? You know what a hell house is, I assume. Like a, um, sure. like a Christian, what, what is- a Christian haunted house where all of the scary attractions are different kinds of like sins you can commit. So this girl that was on the table having an abortion in the clinic I worked in had been the actor in the Christian hell house to scare the, to, scare to scare people the- from having an abortion. Yeah. Wow. Um, That's the irony (laughs) of that. And uh, just real quickly, like most people who have an abortion may never think that they will, and they may be against it. And then something happens. Absolutely. Um, Somebody actually commented on that post of mine. I was 17 and at the time, very Christian. I wrote a six minute long spoken word poem about why I thought abortion was wrong and performed it in front of 2000 people. I had an abortion the next year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, And let me go uh, continue with this list. So the Catholic woman, the girl who had been the hell house girl, Muslims, um, many who said, I don't believe in this, but... 
12-year-olds, so many 12-year-olds, women who thought women who thought they were already through menopause, someone who used a baggie and a rubber band as a condom, university professors, the daughter of a prominent local family, engaged women, women who couldn't read, grandmas, college kids, sex workers, many women who had kids at home and they would talk about them proudly during the procedure, people who had sex for fun or for love, people who were there as a result of being assaulted, people who'd had sex one single time, yeah. married, married women, women who were desperately hiding the pregnancies from violent partners, incest survivors, people who did not know who the father was, those who desperately wanted to be pregnant and had to make heartbreaking decisions. Aww. So basically every kind of person you can imagine from every stratus of society and every religion has abortions. There's no type of person who has an abortion. Yeah. And I only, I only worked in clinics for a year and a half and that's what I saw in a year and a half. Wow. Oh, that was all your personal. Wow. Yes. Those were yeah. all people that I personally counseled. Wow. <sighs> I just felt so much just, I would say compassion and understanding and kind of sadness because it's, it's not an easy thing. I'm going to like tear up. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it isn't. I mean, it's so emotional and I get emotional thinking about those people and, you know, the people who are still those people now, but can't have one. It's yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, cruel. Uh, it's, it's cruel. It's cruel because we should have a choice and there's just, there's so much depth and men can't even understand what we go through, mm-hmm. even just as being a woman and even taking a freaking pregnancy test. Has a man ever fucking taken a pregnancy <laughs> test and had to think, you know, my first one, I was 18 or 19 years old and I'm in college. And I think it like, I had to go to class and I was like running late and I like couldn't wait. And then I just remember taking it. You have to think of being pregnant when you take a pregnancy test. That alone is freaking uncomfortable. I'm thankful I haven't taken a lot of pregnancy tests through my life and I'm in my thirties. So I'm thankful, Mm -hmm. but it's not even fun just to do that. No, it's scary. It's so scary. I remember buying one one time and I had this lovely, lady check me out at CVS and she was like, I hope you get whatever outcome you want. And I was like, yes. thank you. That was, that's so good. I'm, that is amazing that she said that. Wow. I know. She I'm, was like an older woman and she just rang me up and said, I hope you get whatever outcome you want, dear. <laughs> wow. That was great. I love it really that. was. Oh my gosh. I think that if men were the ones that were getting pregnant, they would have the ability to get a plan B pill at the fucking vending machine. Oh yeah. I believe so too. Um, it would not be as controlled if, you know, cisgender men <laughs> were, were the ones it would not yeah. be, it would not be like it is. We would not yeah. have this decision being taken out of our hands. Um, if you have time, why do you think it is like, I would, I mean, this might be a really big topic, but. I mean, I see, again, like kind of zooming out on just Mm -hmm. looking at the human species and we, 
sex, sex and the sex drive is such a normal, natural part of, of the human experience. But I think that some people are very intimidated by, um, like if we're talking about like cisgender men, cisgender women, like women's mm-hmm. sexuality and our ability to have our own control of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so taking away our knowledge about our bodies, taking away our connection to our pleasure and taking away our right to make decisions about our bodies is one way to remove a lot of our options and control us. Yeah. Make us more dependent on men, make us more dependent on having a, you know, male partner and a nuclear family, make us, you know, just less able to kind of do whatever the hell we want. Yeah. They don't they don't like that. So yeah, yeah, I think that when you kind of look at it from a big perspective, it is truly all about control. Yeah. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I definitely have. Um, I came out with Sexy Biz Babe about three years ago. And when I did, people weren't really sexy and business didn't go together. That's oh, why yeah. I did it. Yeah, I, did I love it that. Because <laughs> it didn't go together. And yeah. when I did it, Sexy Biz Babe, I did, you know, some market research to see what people thought. And actually, most people didn't vote on that name. People didn't, yeah, they were against it. They were like, no, like sex and business doesn't go together. A few of my friends even said, you should stick with Level Up with Tia. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, because I believe that women can still be empowered and sexy and own a business and still be respected. Yes, me too. It's a multi, we are multifaceted beings. You don't have to turn off your sexy to be in business. Yeah. You don't have to turn off your sexy to be a parent, you know, like, yeah, you don't have to turn off your sexy when you reach a certain age. It's like, like, I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if you've noticed, but now people talk about sexy in business. There's so much because I dance and I talk about how I do pole and how I'm a coach and a lot of my clients hired me for a business coach while I was doing pole and sharing how it affected me and how I, you know, these different ways. And I've now seen a lot of these coaches own their sexy and talk about sexy. Mm. And now they're putting sexy in their content. And I'm like, I never would have thought you would have done that, but great. Yes. You look at you out here just (laughs) paving the way. (laughs) Yeah. And so I've really noticed this sexual feminine energy empowerment arising in culture. And I feel it spreading because like I have a coach over there that did a coach over in Michigan, a coach over there. And they're like rising. We're having this feminine rising where we're owning our sexuality. We're also in business. We're also successful. We're also, Mm -hmm. we're doing it all. And I feel that men are super scared of this because they are not needed anymore. You just (laughs) said it right there. I mean, I, I am not anti-man. I am not a man hater. I have, you know, had one, I have wonderful men in my life, Yes, but you're right. Like when, when you make it clear that you do not need that to live, it can scare the shit out of some people. Yeah. And women are doing it. Um, I'm watching these like dating shows and the women are owning the houses. They have a business. They are, they want to get married and they're very 
logical and sensible and they're looking for a man and these men are just not even measuring up. I'm not saying all men. I love men. Yeah. Yeah. But men also, you need a rising too. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I feel like it is control. And um, of course it happened now Mm -hmm. because all of this amazing energy and rising is happening. So we need to fight back. And that was what I kind of wanted to end on is what can women, men, supporters, non-binary people do right now to help this change? Because I, I feel so, what's the word? Like I can't do anything. Helpless really. Like it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's always important to be vocal about, you know, questioning these kind of gendered expectations. And if you are a man being vocal about the fact that you too think they're bullshit, because I think these these gendered expectations yes. don't just hurt women, they hurt men. They do. They hurt everybody. Like when we're saying, well, men have to be this tough masculine person and women have to be this needy, you know, helper. It's like, that's not liberation for no. anybody. Um, yeah. And so I think just being willing to examine sort of like the traditional beliefs we've been given about men, women, gender in general, um, and talking to other people about them and giving yourself the opportunity to like be outside the box of whatever you were told you have to stay in. Yeah. And, you know, like you were clearly outside of many boxes and you were (laughs) having a, you were doing amazing, you know, like this is, you you cannot be contained and i don't want to be contained so i feel yeah. like it's important to yeah just not let yourself be bound by those like harmful old restrictive beliefs yeah and yeah speaking up and men supporting the women that you know in your life that may be going through something and being an open ear even or support or mm-hmm. being a better man being a better person sharing like, Hey, are you okay? Like, I don't know. Women don't have a lot of support with some of these issues. Yep. And if they could educate themselves a little bit more, I think that would be helpful. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I hope this has been informative and that we can take away some things. And if there's any triggers, maybe just look into it a little bit deeper and I hold space for you and I hold space for your beliefs. I don't believe there's any wrong or right. And yeah, just having compassion and seeking towards love instead of fear, I think is the way to go. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. I loved this. This was super informative and educational. Where can they find you and connect with you? Sure. So my main kind of platform I use is Instagram. And on Instagram, I'm ericasmith.sexed. And Erica is spelled with a C. And my website is puritycultureDropout.com. And that's where you can find all the info on the classes I have for sale about working with me one-on-one. Um, and I also have a sexual values workbook that we talked about how to like find out what your own values are. Um, I wrote the workbook just for that. So that is also something you can find on purityculturedropout.com. Awesome. And the links will be in my bio. Definitely go check it out. Go download that workbook. It'll help you understand yourself, understand where you stand and, Ooh, I love it. So thank you so much, Erica. Yeah, thank you, Tia. 
Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, review, and share with your fellow biz babes. I'd love to hear your thoughts, takeaways, and questions. So leave me a review on iTunes. And until next time, I'll see you at the top. It's up to you to level up.